but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Today, I'm excited to share this conversation with the wise and thoughtful human, Eric Zimmer. You might have come across Eric through his award-winning podcast, The One You Feed, where he's interviewed hundreds of the wisest and most inspiring humans on the planet. He's also a father, an entrepreneur, a behavior coach, and an author on a quest to understand how we might live more intentional lives. And we get into the impact that these conversations have had on his life and perspective over the last decade. But we begin with the chapters of his life before the podcast. How at age 24, he was living out of the back of a van and spending $300 a day on his heroin addiction and facing up to 50 years in jail. And we talk about this this journey that he's been on and the, the gifts of the AA program, his thoughts on what created the conditions for both his addiction and the sobriety that followed. And it was really interesting to see how Eric and I share this mutual fascination for questions around how to take insights and actually apply them to everyday life. And some of the parallels between the spiritual habits program that Eric hosts with the work that I've been involved with around researching resilience and the nervous system. Which leads me to an exciting announcement. This podcast has its first official sponsor. It's a five-week program called Nervous System Mastery that has been designed and built by me. The cohort-based course will share research-backed protocols to cultivate calm, agency, and resilience in everyday life. I've had pretty incredible feedback from the first version that ran in October last year. One previous student wrote to me and said, Nervous System Mastery was supportive, grounding, expansive, interesting, delivered with integrity and true passion, science with practical evidence. Building and teaching this course is now my primary obsession and the income that comes from this course directly enables me to put my time and money into more of these episodes. So if this sounds interesting at all, you can find more details at nsmastery.com and there's also a link in the show notes. Okay. Without further ado, I give you this conversation with Eric Zimmer. Welcome, Eric. Lovely to have you here. I am uh, really happy to be here. Thank you. How are you feeling in three words? Tired, but great. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Okay, well, I imagine that our conversation will jump around quite a bit. Um, But as a kind of starting point, my version of your opening parable is this question. Uh, Were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? I've thought about this question, knowing it was coming, and I still don't know how to answer it. in some ways, I was curious, I think. Um, I just tended to be curious about things that got me into trouble very often. <laughs> that's great. So it, it's <laughs> almost as if my, you know, I don't know why, but by like the age of like 
eight, I was a kleptomaniac. You know, I was fascinated with stealing things. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm assuming that's because, you know, I had some small T trauma things going on in my life that were that were pushing me in a direction. Um, but, you know, I love to explore. I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, um, we were like the first house on a new subdivision. So there were always houses being built. I loved exploring, going into the houses as they were, they were being built. As I got older, I loved going into other people's houses, like when I wasn't supposed to. Um, mainly just to kind of, like, I wasn't really, you know, I was just poking around. I, um, so I think there was a lot of that kind of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always loved to read. I think I loved to read from a very, very young age. So I, the library, I was always, I've always loved the library, you know, put me in a library and I just feel like, (laughs) ah, I just feel good. I feel, Mm -hmm. I feel at home and safe and, and excited. And so I think, yes, uh, to, to some degree. And I think also, again, some of that small T trauma stuff also in some ways caused me to close in on myself and maybe lose some of that curiosity at points. But I think by nature, yes, it's one of my more, certainly now it's one of my more prevalent characteristics. Mm, mm, I, 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 I love that. And there's almost this sense of like rebellious curiosity as well and trying to like find out what the edges are in terms of like what, you know, what the parents, what the older people say we're not allowed to do. And I think there's something really kind of healthy about that, even though it gets us into trouble when we're younger. Yes, totally. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I mean, I loved to be out at night, you know, like mm -hmm. even from a young age, like sneak out and just be out at night because it just felt like you just, it was just different. It was different than being, you know, walking around in the day where everybody was. It was mysterious and slightly scary. And yeah, I just always loved it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something about that silence as well. That there's some, I, for me, it's like mm-hmm. either really early in the morning or late in the evening where you can just kind of be with yourself in a very different way than when there's, there's light. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really powerful. And uh, well, I, I, I can definitely resonate with the love of being around books and libraries and, 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 and bookshops. Were there any stories in particular that you read growing up that you feel like um, really stuck with you or really resonated? Well, one of the things about me is I, I don't remember things that I read a lot. Like it's, it's, I mean, I, I read things for the show and I, I read things around personal development and I remember some of that. But like fiction, I've always loved fiction. But if you ask me like a year later, like, what did you like about that book? Or what was it about? I'll be like, uh, I just know that it made me feel X or Y. So I can kind of remember the feeling. Mm. Um, you know, I um try to think if there are any stories that really resonated with me as a kid. The first the first one that I can remember, and I was not a kid at this point, but the first, like, I can remember, like, my head being exploded by a book. I'm sure it happened many times before, was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Mm. Like, that that book blew the top of my head off um, mm. and completely altered the direction 
of my life um, in ways that for years I would have said were not positive. And I think in, in the short term, you'd say, no, those were definitely not positive things. With the view of my whole life, I'm like, okay, yeah, that was the right direction for me to go. Um, but that's the first book I can remember um, having that kind of experience with. But I know I had it with others before. I wouldn't have loved libraries as much as I did. I have some recollection of loving Moby Dick, but I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And um, so I, I suppose going from re reading on the road and, and, and stealing things a lot as a kid, um, I've read in your bio that at age, I think, 24, you were, you were homeless, you were a heroin junkie and facing long jail sentences. There's, there's a lot there. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think were some of the circumstances that led you to that point? And maybe you could briefly paint a picture of what, you know, what was life like? At, mm -hmm. that, at that time. Yeah. Well, I think by what I've sort of said so far, like, you know, I, at 10, I was a kleptomaniac. You know, I loved on the road. People are probably like, I'm not surprised to hear that at 24, <laughs> it's a natural evolution. <laughs> things not going well. Um, yeah. I mean, boy, why do we become what we become is such a fascinating question under any circumstances, particularly. And then when you say, when you look at something that extreme, you know, you look at something like, all right, homeless and heroin addict and going to jail for a long time. I think there were a lot of factors, you know, I think, I think I had a natural love for, as you said earlier, edgy things, you know, I, I just, I was always pulled that way. I'm not entirely sure why, but I, I was, I certainly had, we know that, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences uh, make people more likely to suffer addictions. Mm -hmm. um, I did not have like a barbaric childhood, but I did not have by and large a childhood that nourished who I was at all. I think I was a highly sensitive and highly intelligent child mm -hmm. that my parents had no idea what to do with. Mm -hmm. You know, like I know early on, like I was studied, uh, by like some OSU, uh, Ohio State University researchers, because I was reading it like, you know, two, and I was just way, I was very intelligent in, in those ways. And so, but I don't think my parents had the foggiest idea what to do with me. Um, and they were, you know, my, my, they both have suffered depression and had mental illness and just like, they just weren't, they weren't capable of being good parents. They were, there's nothing, they're lovely people. They just weren't capable. They had their own problems, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that played a role. Um, I think at, at 18, I, you know, I, I think I, a little bit before that, but there were a couple of different things. I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol like everybody does. It's just that I fell head over heels in love mm. with drugs and alcohol. Like from the minute, like, I drank very strangely from early on. Like when I was probably 15, um, somebody was like, you can get drunk on mouthwash. And I was like, what? I didn't even know what drunk was, but I drank a bottle of scope and then I knew what drunk was and kind of just went that route. I remember mm -hmm. being on, like my mom was sending me on like, you know, Bible uh, or, or, you know, uh, church trips to Florida. I mean, we did great things. We did went and did Habitat for Humanity, but at night I'm getting the entire youth group drunk on mouthwash, you know? <laughs> and, and so I just drank strangely. 
Um, I remember many times like I would drink and I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be alcohol left over and I'd be like, well, why not? And I would just drink it again. Like this is early in my drinking career. And then mm-hmm. I founded a nonprofit for uh, disadvantaged children in high school. And when I saw what was happening to those children in their lives from drugs and alcohol, I said no more. And I didn't do it for like two years. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, I went away for a while, I did, traveled the, the West Coast and did some fun things after I graduated. And I came home and my best friend was dating my girlfriend and I just fell apart. My, I was just heartbroken. I was mm-hmm. utterly like, I just didn't know what, like, I don't know, I didn't know what to do with that. Like, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, it's one thing if you lose your best friend, it's one thing if you lose your girlfriend, it's a different thing when you lose them to each other. Um, and one night somebody was like, here, have a drink. Uh, and I thought, I don't give a shit anymore. And um, I drank. And from that moment forward, it was like the switch flipped. And I was rarely sober until I, you know, got into recovery at at 24. So, um, so uh, you know, I think all those things contribute. But at 24, yeah, I was um, essentially homeless. I mean, home was a back of a van that I uh, that the, the this crappy beat up van that the owner of this restaurant I worked at let me. He didn't know I was sleeping in it. You know, <laughs> he just thought I was driving it during the day for deliveries. Um, yeah, I, I was, I had a very expensive heroin habit, like $300 a day. I was, I didn't know it. I had hepatitis C. Um, I weighed a hundred pounds, you know, I mean, I mean, I weighed 50 pounds less than I weigh today. I mean, that's, it's just, I was dying, you know, I was really sick and, you know, I don't, yeah, I think so that's kind of where I was. And then I, you know, then I got arrested and, um, there was enough things that sort of propelled me into recovery, thankfully. Mm. Well, was it was it getting arrested that was kind of like the the rock bottom moment that kind of sealed your trajectory into into recovery, or was it was there something else as well? No, that was a big part of it. I had been I had tried several times before that. I had come, you know, I had I had I had realized like, okay, you know, uh, heroin addiction is not a fun thing to have. Um, and so I'd started trying different things. I, I moved to this small town and I thought, well, maybe that'll work. And it, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I tried to go into treatment a couple of times and that didn't work. Um, and when I got arrested, a couple of things happened all at once. One was, yeah, I was in deep trouble. Two was I lost my home because, uh, I was arrested at work which meant that the van I was sleeping in was taken away from me and the job was taken away from me, which was where I was making a lot of the money that I used to then buy drugs. And I lost all that in one fell swoop. And, um, I was just, I, I, I did what some addicts will do at that point out of desperation. I said, I'm going to go to detox. Cause I didn't know what to do. I knew like, I'm about to get really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea where I'm going to come up. I, like, I'm just out of schemes at this point. You know, I don't know where to get the kind of money I need in order to not be sick. Mm-hmm. And so I went into detox. And while I was there, they were like, you need to go into a 30-day treatment. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't think so. And I went back to my room. And in recovery, we call them like a moment of clarity. You know, if, the, if there was a, if you're going to make a movie version of all this, this would be the moment, me going back to my room and having a moment. But my moment of clarity was like, if I go back out there, I'm probably either A, going to die, 
Mm-hmm. Or B, I'm going to go to jail for a long time. You know, I mean, I, I had something like 50 years of jail time staring wow. me in the face. And so I just had enough clarity and I went back and I said, all right, I'll go into the 30 day treatment. Wow. And um, somewhere in that process of being in there, I got enough hope that sort of said, hey, you know, I think I can do this. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we talk about recovery as if it's something that someone does on their own heroically, and it is not, right? By and large, it is very much something you are supported through. And I had a lot of privilege, right? I was a white male from a up, you know, from a middle class home. I had been, I at least had enough education that I could talk, you know, and so like that I could, I, I had prospects getting out. And so, um, you know, I was able to not go to jail. Right. I was able to be offered like, hey, if you stay sober, that's huge. And you do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't even get that opportunity. So I was given a lot of opportunity. Um, I still had to stay sober, right? I still had to figure it out. I worked like hell at it. And I had a lot of um I, I had a lot of opportunity, you know, that mm-hmm. that you know, I watched a lot of people not have, and I didn't realize it till later. I think I younger, I was maybe a little bit more arrogant to be like, well, I did the work and maybe they're not, but I now see it so much more complex than that. The social support that I had was very different than the social support. A lot of these people had. Mm, Wow. Wow. There's, there's there's so much here. There's, there's two threads that are really alive for me right now. Um, one of them is, um, in that recovery process and journey, kind of looking back with hindsight, what do you think were some of the aspects that made the most difference for you personally in terms of sticking to it? And and is that in some way connected to the, like how your life evolved afterwards as well? Yeah, I think they are related. I mean, what I did is I went to, uh, I went to AA and it is not the answer for everybody. Um, but it saved my life twice. Um, And I really immersed myself in AA and it gave me a lot of things. And I think these things are important for people who are trying to recover, even if AA is not the place they go. It's just that AA, I think, brought them all together in a way that nobody had ever figured out before then. And again, it's not perfect. There's, I I, I have lots of, I, I could have an entire show about my AA complaints. And again, I have a deep debt of gratitude, but it it gave me a few things. One is it gave me a community of people who knew what I was going through and could say, I've been there and you know what, here's a path, here's a way out. So it just, it, it, I just don't think we can recover alone. I see a lot of people try it. It's really, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So the community was there and AA was everywhere and it was free which I needed, you know, I was dead broke and, um, and it was everywhere and it was free. And so that was really beneficial. Secondly, AA does provide a program by which you get better. It does provide the 12 steps and the steps are very God oriented, depending on who's talking about them. I mean, the word God is in them multiple times, right? So you have to do some translating, if you don't necessarily believe in God. And, and again, there are, we could get into very nuanced discussions around that, but I don't think this is really the the place for that. But 
there was a there was a program of transformation. There was a if you want to get better, here are a series of things that you can do that provided transformation. And 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 the and the steps can be very transformative. So I think there was there was community, there was a path of transformation, there was um the opportunity to very quickly begin contributing. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Even if it's yeah, just, yeah. I'll wash the coffee cups, yeah. I'll clean the, you know, this was a day when it back where people actually smoked indoors, I'll clean the ashtrays, I'll, you know, whatever. But after a little while, you suddenly realize like, well, I've got 30 days sober and there's some guy walking in who's got one day sober. Like I can just go over and talk to him. Hmm. And, and I learned a really important lesson there that has been really important, which was that, Regardless of whether I was the one who had more time sober and I was helping the newer person, mm. or I was the one who needed help and I was talking with somebody who may be further along, that that relationship was reciprocal and bi-directional, meaning I helped when I helped others and I was helped by others helping me. It was a, it, it was a very much a reciprocal thing. And, yeah. and I think that's an insight that AA really figured out that was that like it's not like me as an alcoholic i'm i'm reaching down to you as the person who's you know i'm a year sober and you've got 30 days sober i'm getting absolutely as much out of this as you are and mm -hmm. that's that's pretty important like it's a pretty deep realization when you really think about it yeah. you know that like the nature the relationship between helper and helpee is one of mutual benefit and mm -hmm. and and deep uh, reciprocity Mm. Yeah, it's it's really it's really powerful. And and what's what's coming to mind for me, or at least what I'm what I'm curious about, is the connection between the recovery journey and and feeling a sense of connection. And the, there's um I, I read I read somewhere around uh, that there was a conversation between the founder of AA and Carl Jung, kind of back when AA was getting started, mm -hmm. and that Carl Jung was. Um, kind of partly responsible for bringing in a more spiritual based component into AA yeah. from, from, from what I understand. And, and what I think is interesting, um, you know, I, I've never been a heroin addict myself, but my sense mm -hmm. is that the, the underlying impulse to take heroin is one of wishing to feel that sense of deep connection and that sense of, yes. of, of deep belonging in a way. And so it's almost like it's a healthy impulse. It just has very unfortunate conse consequences down the line. And so I, I'm really interested in that mm -hmm. connection that you've f found between kind of that, you know, what you got from the, um, from taking heroin versus what was then found through human relationships and being able to be of service to other people. Yeah. I, there, there's so much in there. Uh, yeah. Young was a, was an important, um, um, intellectual, uh, or, or spiritual father of AA in some ways. And he's the one who made the connection between the, the word that we often use for alcohol, spiritus, spirits, mm, mm. and the, and the word spiritus oh, wow. and said, you know, there, there's something know here, yeah, well. you know? Um, huh. and yeah. And, and young helped sort of say, you know, in some ways what the alcoholic is looking for is transcendence. Mm-hmm. Now we often tend, you know, we've got a, there's a slightly more modern approach 
uh, informed by a lot of people who've done a lot of great trauma research that the, the addict or alcoholic is reacting out of trauma and they are using to dampen that pain. Mm -hmm. And while I think that is true in many cases and informs it in many cases, my experience was more, I had learned to dampen down the pain very well on my own by just shoving everything inside me down and the world felt dead. Mm-hmm. And what alcohol and drugs did for me was make me feel alive and connected mm-hmm. to the world very much. It was like it made made the world interesting to me again. I wanted to connect. I wanted to connect to you. I wanted to connect to, you know, I wanted, you know, and, and so for me, it was a, it brought me to life. It wasn't that it numbed me. It actually kind of did the opposite for me. It unnumbed me. And I think that's, you know, I, I think there's there's a certain degree of that. Um, so, yeah, AA is very much says, you know, that you need a spiritual answer to your problem. Mm. You know, you do need connection. You know, AA is, you know, the, one of the things that happened is somebody convinced them to put the words as you understand him at the end of, you know, made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God, comma, as you understand him. I think that line has saved millions of lives mm. Um, mm. because it suddenly opens it up. Yep. And so, yeah, for me, it was as somebody who um, didn't, I, I came in and I came in, I was so desperate that I was willing to believe anything anybody took. Like, tell me what to do, I'll try. I'll try it. And I was in Columbus, Ohio, which is the Midwest in the US in 1994. And God in those days meant, you know, it meant the Christian God of your, I mean, that's what it was, right? There wasn't a lot of, it's a totally different world now, but it wasn't then. And so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try. I'll try and believe in that kind of God. And it worked well enough to get me sober. And then I had a crisis happen. And um, I realized like, I don't, my spiritual belief is very immature. So when I, I eventually went back out and drank again for a few years. And when I came back, I was like, all right, I got to figure out what does this mean to me? Mm. You know, what, what, what is a spiritual life? What is a connection that I can actually, since I don't believe in a God that intervenes in human affairs, mm-hmm. you know, what do I believe in? What can I get behind? Because I may be able to get sober by sort of uh, uh, a, a slightly immature spirit, uh, for me, immature spiritual perspective. I couldn't handle the up and downs of life. And so I had to find something that could withstand mm-hmm. all the things that life throws at us, which is can be an awful lot of difficulty mm-hmm. yeah yeah um and and that i don't know makes, if any of that answered your question it, no it does it does brilliantly and it and it's it's a nice segue to um you kind of use the word like spiritual immaturity which is an interesting term and, and and i think it's almost like when we receive a like a package or a set of beliefs which we don't really question or conclusions that we don't arrive to for us for ourselves and so yeah what what kind of arises for me is is like what was the process of your spiritual maturation like what kind of questions really helped to open you up and, and what directions did that did that lead you yeah well i my spiritual immaturity was one where i i sort of ended up with a rough belief that i mean i i wouldn't have said this out loud but looking back 
my rough belief was if I do good things, good things will happen to me. Right. Like, okay, I'm in AA and I'm, I'm, I'm sponsoring all these people and I'm doing all this good work and I'm doing all this help and life is going well. Okay, good. I'm doing good things. Good things are happening to me. My career is taking off. Uh, And then my wife came home one day and said, uh, I don't love you anymore. I love this other guy who's in AA and uh, we need to separate. And I had a two-year-old son and um, I just was devastated. Now, it's important to say like, there are reasons that my wife was in a position that like, I'm not saying like she's this all, she was this awful person, right? I clearly, I brought things to that marriage. I was, you know, I was damaged, but I fell apart at that point. And um, so for me, my, my, my maturity, my spiritual maturity had to be a little bit about, it still is actually my maturation process seems to always revolve around what can I trust in? What do I trust in? Mm-hmm. So I suddenly went, you know, this is when I came back, right? When I, when I, so it's not real important what happened, but I didn't, I didn't get drunk after that happened, but uh, several years later I did. And I went out and I drank for a few years and I, I, I found my way back to AA. And at that point, you know, I'd been about eight years sober, drank for about four years. At that point, I was like, all right, I've got to figure out what this means. Because AA's basic proposition is, hey, you're we're out of control with alcohol. You can't on your own just shut it off. You need to find a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. And then you need to turn your will and your life over to that power greater than yourself. Right? That's its core premise. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe in that core premise to some degree. Um, although I, I, I again, th- these are these are nuanced questions. People will say, well, saying you're powerless over alcohol, doesn't that make give alcohol more power? And mm-hmm. but the long and short of it was I recognized I'm not gonna recover under only my own steam. Right. And yep. so so what do I what can I trust in? You know, what is a power, you know, what can I, I trust in? And I think that has continued to emerge for me. But what I realized was I don't believe in a God that comes down and says, oh, I'll get Eric sober, but I won't get Johnny sober. And, you know, I plucked Eric out of that car crash, but I didn't pluck Bob out of it. Like for me, I just went like, I, I can't wrap my head around this. It doesn't make sense to me. It just, I don't believe it. So what then am I turning to, you know, what is a higher power? What is, and, and I think where I landed and, and I still have, this is still forms a lot of the foundation was, I believe that there are spiritual principles that are true. And that when I orient my life around them and with the support of other people, I can handle what life brings to me. That's sort of the fundamental, like, okay, you know, I, I no longer believe like that bad things won't happen. It's obvious the the world dishes out terrible things all day long to all kinds of people. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, hang on sooner or later, something will, right? It's just, it's life, you know, at the very least you're going to, you, you'll get old and die. Like we know that. And that sucks, you know? And so, so I had to go, okay, well, all right. My spiritual belief isn't that that stuff's not going to happen to me. 
I don't know what, I don't know what flavor it will be, but something will, you know, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Right. And so, um, so how do I work with that? You know? And so for me, it was orienting sort of around some foundational spiritual principles. And this is kind of what led to ultimately a lot of years later to my spiritual habits program. Um, and knowing that with support of other people. So that's foundationally what I trust in. Now, over time, I've had some deeper and deeper experiences that where I have experienced deeply and profoundly our true interconnection and an underlying unity. Mm-hmm. And that I now have a trust in that gives me a comfort in a way that I didn't have for a lot of years mm-hmm. that I, that I now have is something I didn't have maybe, you know, a decade ago or yeah. two decades before that. But, but that's kind of what it, what my, my spiritual maturation process has looked like and a recognition that, you know, this sense of me as a separate self that needs protected is only part of the story. It's not that it's not true, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm clearly me and you're clearly you. And if I get, you know, if I stub my toe, it hurts me and it doesn't hurt you. So there's some truth to it, of course. Mm-hmm. And I believe there are, there's a deep, there are deep, there are other truths that are equally as true and we don't naturally orient around, but can provide us a great deal of comfort and um, connection. Mm. Wow. <clears throat> I, I really love that question of like, what can you trust in? Yeah. And I, I was listening to um, Adi Shanti last night and he, he was, he's written this book called The Most Important Thing. And he basically just like reiterates what is the most important thing to you in these different areas over and over again. And it's incredibly confronting. <laughs> I, totally. I, was, I, I was thinking about it th- this morning a lot as well. And my, my sense of, and it's interesting that it's, it almost sounds like the path of spiritual maturity is to kind of find a... A, a very powerful question like what can you trust in and then go to earnestly mm-hmm. search for yourself and and it's through that earnest kind of um almost like pe- like painful searching that mm-hmm. some of these realizations some of the deeper truths emerge as opposed to necessarily reading or listening to someone else telling you what to believe um and and, and it's, it sounds like a yes. certain degree of like suffering is necessary to propel one into that inquiry as well it's helpful for sure you know one thing that's become interesting for me as i've gotten older and um i think wiser and um my life is generally just i i just don't i don't suffer as much mm-hmm. By, I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, like I used to, is yeah. How where's the fuel for transformation come from when suffering is largely gone? You know, um, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question because suffering is how most of us. I know you, right? Like I know your story. It's what it's what gets most of us interested in this work. Mm-hmm. But if we do the work well, the suffering tends to leave. You know, we find joy and peace. And then it's a matter of like, okay, how do I translate that joy and peace into continued further work and development, not into just being comfortable? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and for me, there's also been a part of, of like, um, I, I think as our sense of connection deepens, we tend to notice or feel more sensitive to suffering like in yes. the world and to other people. And I think that can be a powerful portal as well to just experiencing it for ourselves. 
that's a that is such a such a great point and um that's a really great point and i don't know why that insight hasn't hit me more clearly before because you're absolutely right like that's what orients so much of my life you know is i know i mean i, I talk to enough members of our audience the people who come to my show i don't i don't know your audience but we have a lot of people who show up who are in a great deal of suffering and pain you know, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of people who are listening, who are, you know, but I think with my story of addiction in the background, with my story of depression in the background, a lot of people gravitate in that way. And totally. I know they're in a lot of pain and that is what primarily by and large motivates me. Um, but I'm also pulled along by, I have had some experiences that were so profoundly beautiful and freeing that I'm like, uh, more please. <laughs> yeah beautiful um well i i um i as i'm sure a lot of um you know listeners out there discovered you through the podcast initially and uh, i've got a lot of curiosity about this eight-year journey as well um and i i'd love to kind of hear what for you was the inception point for the podcast itself with with your friend chris i believe um and, mm -hmm. and perhaps what was your what was the motivation um, back then? Like I hadn't even heard a podcast in 2013. <laughs> yeah. Like, what was yeah. The... yeah, it was, there were a few different things that sort of converged. One was I had founded a solar energy company um, in 2008 in pretty cloudy Ohio, which um, upon retrospect, I can see some flaws in the business plan. Although the fundamental flaw was that the state of Ohio passed some very progressive legislation, like unanimously about wanting to diversify their energy source. So suddenly there was a reason to do solar in Ohio. And so I started a solar energy company. And then over the year, over the years, the, 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 the legislature went further and further and further uh, in one political direction and slowly began rolling back that legislature. And I had multiple times, you know, five, 10, $15 million worth of deals go up in smoke because somebody in the legislature was like, well, we don't know if we're going to honor this. Mm -hmm. And after about the third time that happened, I went, I just can't do it anymore. Like I'm, <laughs> I, you know, my heart is broken. And so I was in a heartbroken place. Um, I was back doing my my career, which had been software, which I, you know, I liked well enough. Um, I wasn't a developer, but I did everything around development. The career was fine. Um, but the thing I had really put my heart and soul into was was over. And I actually made a decision where I was like, you know, I started hearing about podcasts. I don't know how. Oh, actually, I do, because I decided what I was going to do is create an online course about how to develop large solar energy projects, because I had a bit of a specialized knowledge at that point. And so we started doing that. And as I thought about that, I was like, well, you got to get people to find your course. And how do you do that? That led me to podcasts. And I eventually decided like my heart, I, my heart, I just can't, I don't even want to create a solar energy course. Like I'm just done. Like, and so, but somehow the idea of a podcast started popping around my head, I guess. And I just feel like one day I got the idea. I was like, oh, I could host a podcast where I would interview authors about the type of books I'm already reading. And I could ask my best friend, Chris, who is an audio engineer to do it. And then we would spend more time together, which we're not doing enough of. Mm. Um, and I'm a little bit bored. I've just kind of had my heart broken by this business. And I'm in a 
very difficult marriage. And you know what? I could really use this, you know, mm-hmm. in addition to those other reasons, like it would be really good for me mm-hmm. to be immersed and swimming in these ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the, the motivation. I mean, at that point, I, I mean, I certainly thought, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe someday we'll get a couple sponsors and we might make a few hundred dollars. Like, that would be nice, you know, like, yeah, sure, we yeah. could, you know, Chris and I could go get pizza a couple of times a month or something, <laughs> you know. And yeah. so, um, so yeah, that was kind of how it started. And, yeah. and it just, it went really well. It went really well in a couple of ways. It, in, it went well in that, like, I was like, I love doing this. It went well in like my mental and emotional health is immediately better because I'm reading a book a week about this mm. stuff and talking to people. I'm spending time with Chris more often, which is what I wanted. And surprisingly, people are listening, you know, like, mm-hmm. so I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I can really relate to the fact that a podcast is almost like, it's like a forcing function for you to um, take your curiosity more seriously. And, and, mm. and, and you know, to, to reach out to authors that you maybe admire and then not only read their book, but read their book friggin' thoroughly and like making notes and like <laughs> questions in the in the margins because you want to, you know, you want to be prepared. You want to you want to know, know what they've written yep. about. And I know you've spoken with just some incredibly wise humans from Krista Tippett, Tim Urban, Julia Cameron, Baron Casey, Jack Cornfield. So there's just like a, an insane, insane list. Um, were there any any moments during the conversations or, or, or like revelations that arose that are kind of like etched in your memory or that really stand out if you, if you look back over the, over the archive? You know, the first moment that really stands out to me is we interviewed a guy by the name of Mike Scott. He's uh, he was the front man for a band called the water boys, which were kind of, they got, they got marginally big in say the UK in, in U2 shadow, but they were like my favorite band for years. Chris and I, like they, the guy was an icon an idol of mine. And I got, he, he agreed to come on the show and I was just, I couldn't believe like I am talk, I'm interviewing Mike Scott. Like it just, you know, I, I'm fortunate in that my tastes were niche enough broadly that I could get people on the show who meant the world to me, mm-hmm. but weren't that popular that it was that hard to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, I, I you know, I admired, um, you know, um, Oprah. I mean, not that I don't admire Oprah. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not where I was aiming at. Right. I was aiming at these people who meant a ton to me early on. Um, that one stands out. Um Over time, I have to say that the insights have, have, they have seeped into me so deeply that I don't remember, I I don't remember where a lot of them showed up, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been so many conversations and they start to sort of meld together. Mm -hmm. Um, I do remember one conversation and I don't know why this, there's two that stick out to me. One was a gentleman by the name of David Reynolds, who is again, relatively unknown, um, psychologist and um, studied in Japan, Maria therapy and a couple of different things. But but like nobody would know who he is, but I thought he was incredible. Uh, he wrote this book called Constructive Living. And um, he had a line in it that I remember when he said it, I was like, whoa. And what he said was, 
when you get your, he's very focused on behavior, which orients very much with, you know, I've had such a focus on like, you know, okay, it's the actions you take that often matter, right? That was drilled into me in recovery. But he said, if you get your behavior in check, you can afford to feel the full range of your emotions. Mm. And for me, that hit home because I was, I mean, my emotions had led me to near death, right? Like my desire to feel different than I did had nearly killed me. So I was afraid of how I felt to some degree. And so, but in that moment I went, oh, my behavior is in check. I don't think I'm going to go get high or drunk. Mm -hmm. So you know what? Bring it on. Mm. Like I can feel it. I'm safe. I'm okay. But up until then, I realized like there was a hesitation. Like, well, if I feel bad enough. So that was one insight. And another insight was a woman named Mary O'Malley, who just used a phrase that stuck in my head. And I've I've always, it's stuck in my head forever. She said, our brains are like problem factories. And I went, wow, you just nailed it. Because is the minute I solve a problem, it's like the assembly line cranks another one out. <laughs> just that fast. And I just thought that was such a great analogy for what yeah, yeah, yeah. left untrained are, are at least my brain. And I know a lot of people's brains yeah. do. It's just what's next. I solved that problem. I kept, you know, I've been thinking if I could just solve this problem, I'll be happy. And I solve it. And eight seconds later, there's a new one in its place. And I'm just like, wow. So yeah, I remember yeah. that line too, really sticking out to me. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, a, I think a curse of having a strong intellect or at least having kind of been rewarded for using one's intellect and less yeah. being less in touch with, 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 with emotions. And I, I had a similar, I had a conversation with a guy called Joe Hudson recently, and he talked about emotional fluidity in a way mm-hmm. that just really, really landed with me as well. And that really kind of part, part of our maturity is opening up to feel the full spectrum of emotions and, and like yeah. unkinking the hose um, in, in, in certain ways. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, um, I think that's, you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about it and I think sort of like the meta skill, if you want to get sober is you just have to hit a point where you're like, I can, I can feel whatever comes up mm-hmm. and I don't have to use like once that's there, you've, it's kind of figured out. You know, and, and I think we can apply that to a lot of other areas in life, right? Like once I'm like, well, you know what, I can feel that. And I don't have to, whatever my thing is, go eat, you know, zone out on video games, whatever I can feel it. And it's not going to kill me. I may not like it and I will get through it. And, and it, you know, it does open me up to a deeper richness. I, I think that's such a fundamental insight. It's, it's really important. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right that like being able to feel or, or, or at least having the, the knowledge that we can feel anything and, and even if we are broken open by it, that we can then emerge, you know, maybe even stronger the other side. And I think that was part of what I took from the process of grief and that I experienced something that I thought, you know, I, I would have considered to be completely unimaginable and I was able to make my way through it. And I think that does give us this, um, this resilience and this almost like it's like a superpower of like, like things might come my way that will fucking hurt, but I trust myself to be able to move through it. And actually it might even be fuel for my own, my own growth and, and my own kind of learning along the way as well. Totally. That, that is such an important piece. And 
you know, the times in my life that have been most painful emotionally uh, have also been the most fertile for my growth. You know, I, I, they just are, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to have them happen. I wouldn't wish them on anybody. You know, I wouldn't wish what happened to you on anybody. And, you know, you would not be the person you are today, you know, mm-hmm. without it. I'm not saying you wouldn't be a, you'd be a wonderful person, but you wouldn't be who you are. It would not be sure. the same. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, our, our, I think interviewing Krista Tippett was once where I got this idea, like, we don't, we, we don't become great in spite of our problems, but we become great because of them, mm. you know, and that was a pretty fundamental insight. Also, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, MLK did not become who he was because, you know, you know, in spite of all the challenges that he went through, he became who he was because of those challenges. You know, it, it, it is. That's I, I interviewed a guy. I don't know if you know, he, he's his name is Michael Bungay Stanier, and he's written a couple of books on coaching. One that's like a it was a big bestseller called The Coaching Habit. Fascinating guy. But he's got a quote, and I, I, I think it's a Rilke quote, but I don't know for sure. But the basic idea was to be defeated by greater and greater things. It's really, and I thought yeah. That was, I think that's incredible. Yeah, to be successively defeated by yeah greater and greater and greater things. Yeah, I, I, I listened to your interview with 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 Krista Tippett as well. I thought it was really powerful. And actually, something I wanted to ask you about was how do you feel like your interviewing style has changed or evolved over the years, both in terms of the questions that you asked, but also like the way that you kind of bring yourself to these conversations. That's a difficult question that I'm not sure I know how to answer. I would like to think I've gotten better. I would hope I've gotten better after doing it as often as I have done it. But I couldn't say in exactly what ways that is. I certainly, I think, I, you know, early on, you start, I started talking to people who were sort of heroes of mine, and it was intimidating, you know? That has largely faded. I interviewed Jack Cornfield recently, who is like in for me, he's in the top five like people I've ever wanted on the show. He just has been. I was listening to Jack Cornfield on cassette tape from Sounds True that I got out of the library in like 1992 or something, like a long, long time ago. The guy's been, yeah, he's been fundamental in my life for so long, and we only recently. Yeah. got him on, you know, 400 and some episodes in, you know, we just, for whatever reason, just never managed to make it work. He'd be like, yeah. And then it wouldn't happen. And it just, so I think, you know, 200 episodes ago, I would have been more nervous. You know, I was excited, but I, I wasn't really nervous. So in that way, I think I've gotten hopefully better at being conversational. Mm-hmm. I think I've gotten, I've gotten better at like my preparation, it's interesting. My preparation is largely not changed, even though I think it is absolutely overkill. Like I am like, I do not need to prep this much. I feel the same way. <laughs> and yet I can't see, I just feel like it's what I've done up till now and it's work. And, and yeah, I, I can't, I can't seem to let it go. Um, but what one thing that has changed is that the actual notes I go into a conversation with 
are far less and and more brief than they used to be. Mm -hmm. I'm a lot more comfortable with like, I know the basics of this person's work well enough. Mm -hmm. And I know the places it intersects with me and my life well enough that I can like, yeah, I've, I've got some talking points. I've got some quotes of theirs. I've found that people love to hear their work read back to them. It's just mm -hmm. like, they just love it. They mm -hmm. just love it. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, we interviewed a great Buddhist teacher, Mark Coleman today at the end. He said the same thing. He's like, boy, hearing my work read back mm -hmm. to me just really touched me. I, I love his, um, his poetry. So, um, so I think they're, in that way, I still have some of that, but I, I, I have way less notes. I'm a lot more confident in like, I know the person's work and I know myself, I know what my interests are and let's just see what happens. But mm -hmm. I can't speak to, am I like any technical, I, I, I don't, interviewing is a weird craft. There's not a lot of, in, you've probably looked, you're, you're a curious guy, right? You've probably looked, there's not a ton out there about how to be good at it. You know, you want to be good at lots of things in life. You could read till you're blue in the face on it. There's not that much. Mm. Maybe there's emerged in the last couple of years. I don't know. I haven't looked, but early on for me, it was like, you just, there were very few resources on how to be good at it. So um, I just kind of have, you know, hopefully walked my way into it. But I think ultimately like you are, it, the curiosity is what drives the show. The yep. reason it works is that I genuinely respect and am interested in my guests. I don't have anybody on whose book I don't want to read or whose work I don't want to get to know. If I don't want to do that, I'm not going to have them on. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what their following is. Like if I don't want to engage with their work for a significant amount of time ahead of time, mm -hmm. meaning I'm not curious, mm -hmm. then they're not the right fit. And, and I think that, that does, that does a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, totally. I, I really resonate with that. And I, I mean, I'm only <clears throat> like 30 something episodes in, but I've also noticed that my notes are less kind of rigid and structured. And, and I think that part of the, I don't know if this resonates with you as well, but part of the journey for me has almost been trying to, not trying, but like tapping into the aliveness of the conversation and allowing it to be a flow and kind of sensing that. And it, and it does almost become a, like a real forcing function for attention in some ways. And I've been thinking about these kinds of conversations where you do hit record, where it's almost, it's like kind of like an active meditation where there is this like real kind of like you're brought to the, the edge where you're not quite sure what it is that you're going to say. And that's a really kind of yep. exciting place to be. Those are the best ones. The interesting thing though, is that, and again, maybe you've had a great run of 30 and, and, but you do enough of them, you will hit the clunker, right? You will hit the one where, there were like, I've hit this before. Like, I'm like, this person's writing, it gives me chills. Mm. It's so beautiful, but oh my heavens, this is not going well. <laughs> they can't talk or, or, or something's not working. So the, the thing I found to be a really interesting talk about attention is that there's a little juggling act that has to go on, which is I'm giving all, I'm trying to give all my attention to what you are saying right at this moment and connect with it and, and, and jive with it. And then I got to have a little eye out on where might we be going, mm -hmm. you know, now, again, certain conversations, I think you get a little bit into them and you can act, I can actually just go that ah, don't have to worry about keeping an eye on where this is going to go because you know what, 
this is just working mm-hmm. and I can just let go. But but there are times that's not the case. And as a as a skillful interviewer, I feel like I've had to sort of learn how do I keep these things mm-hmm. in in mind. I think it's a little bit about like it's also similar. I've learned that it's similar to having good. Hang on. Where is that thing? Sorry. We're good. Rookie mistake. <laughs> that happened before. You and I talk at 7 p.m. I, I can't turn the alarm off ahead of time because then I'm like, but then it turns it off every day and I won't remember <laughs> to turn it on for tomorrow. It's it's problematic for this time of night. Anyway, sorry about that. No sorry, listeners, if you don't edit it out. Um, but it's like listening to another person. Like there is a there is a mature type of deep listening that is where I am really with you, but I haven't left myself. Mm. I'm I'm learning to do both. I'm learning to be what's coming up inside me, what's happening inside me, but with also with without losing you. Like that's to me, that's what deep listening ultimately means, Mm. because it's this. When I trained in, I'm a trained interface spiritual director, and and um, this was one of the things we talked about was how do you do, you know, how do you do that? And some spiritual directors who are very focused on the divine say there's a third ball you're juggling, which is your connection to the divine. So you're trying to hold your connection to the divine, mm-hmm. your connection to the other person, and your connection to yourself. That's where your attention is sort of flowing. Mm-hmm. So it is a very deeply meditative type mm-hmm. thing. So, so I think that's kind of the art that, that has emerged to me over time because some of that internal connection is really important because it tells me where the flow is. But again, like anything that you're doing well, you forget it. You don't know you're doing it. Right. Right. You're good enough. Ideally you get enough level of skill that you don't, you don't have to, you're not a juggler is not thinking anymore. They're just juggling. Right. Mm-hmm good conversationalist ideally is not doing those things I just said, they're just doing it. But that's, if you deconstruct it, that's a little bit what's of happening. It's what you're doing in this conversation with me. You're, you're totally on me, but you're also in tune with yourself Mm -hmm. because you know what resonates inside you. You're doing both. You don't know it necessarily. Maybe you do, but, but that's, that's part of the, the skill of a good Mm -hmm. conversationalist, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really, really well put. And it, it feels like there's a connection between, um, I had a conversation with a good friend recently who teaches the Alexander technique and he kind of made a, dis, a distinction between oh, attention. What technique? I didn't, I didn't catch a, that. Alexander technique. Oh, a, yeah, a, a, yeah. And, and, uh-huh. and the distinction between attention versus awareness and how mm-hmm. you can have a kind of like awareness field where you are in my awareness field my own body is maybe do- dogs outside like they're kind of vaguely there yeah. but my attention is still very focused on you or on or on, on myself and i think that's a really interesting distinction to make and it can be applied to lots of other contexts outside of interviewing where i think it's really kind of present and really palpable yeah, that is a really good uh, distinction that I think we're hearing more about uh, people making that distinction these days than than maybe we heard four or five years ago. I know, um, you know, the book "The Mind," illuminated by by Chuladasa, who it's a meditation book, but he really lays that concept out in a really amazing way. You know, you you've got these your attention does a couple different 
you know, th- this thing that we call attention actually works in a couple different ways. And, and yeah, one of them is a, is a, is like a flashlight mm-hmm. and the other is this much broader global sort of awareness. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to, I'm speaking of which, <laughs> I'd love to shift gears a little bit, um, yeah. to talk about the spiritual habits program. Um, uh-huh. and, and, and my, my sense is that, um, well, perhaps before, before then, maybe you could share a little bit, um, pick up the thread from earlier of your own personal evolution kind of into spirituality and, and what was it about the teachings that you came across that resonated and then led you to kind of design, design a course like this? Well, obviously I think spiritual, um, principles, which that word is an interesting word. I sometimes think you could call my course psychological, uh, habits and you might, Mm. it, you, you could, you could make a very clear argument like, yep, you got it. It still works or wisdom habits like, yep. Or philosophical habits. Like the the line between these things is so blurred, Mm. right? You know, when I did the, I mentioned the interface spiritual direction, like they were always sort of trying to say like, well, spiritual direction is not psychology. And I was always like, well, yeah, except oftentimes it very much looks exactly like, like, you know, what do you do with a, what do you do with a spiritual tradition like Buddhism that is primarily psychological and insight to a a large degree, right? Like what, so, so these things, these blend together, but, but ultimately for me, it, I was like, what are, I, I started to construct my life out of, as I said earlier, okay, I believe that if I live my life according to spiritual principles, I can handle what comes. Well, what, what, okay, great. What are those principles? Like, you know, what, what are they? And so um, I eventually, after doing the podcast, doing coaching work, living these things out, I sort of went, you know, I think I've got an idea of some of the the, the real core ones. And they're not, there's nothing in them that anybody who hasn't studied uh, even a couple of faith traditions won't go, oh yeah, I recognize that. Oh, that's there. That's there. Oh yeah. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty common, pretty obvious. But what I became fascinated with was why don't, why don't most people, why don't we live it better? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the, how do we actually live these things? Mm-hmm more consistently. And so the two things that seem to emerge from the podcast naturally over time, if I looked at like the two key areas that kept sort of, I kept sort of diving into because my curiosity took me there. Um, one was spiritual development and the other was the behavior change science. And I'm only now saying this out loud, realizing like, duh, no wonder they did because that's what recovery is, right? My recovery was very much behavior change science. How do you change? Right. You know, so, so it's obvious that that's what would, those two things would pull my attention. Um, So that's what spiritual habits was. You know, I just sort of went, okay, you know, like, what do we, what have we learned about how people create habits, how they change? What have we learned about that? And what if we applied that to some pretty foundational spiritual wisdom mm-hmm. and gave people more tools to live these things throughout the moments of their lives, which is the thing I'm most interested in now. Mm-hmm. I would say it's the problem, you know, that I'm most 
want to solve. Mm-hmm. And and I think I've made good good progress. I think the program is very valuable. There's also, we've got spiritual habits, the, the, the first group program. We've got a second deeper dive intensive that we're running cohorts through. I feel like I've made a lot of progress and I think there's still a lot to learn in that mm-hmm. space. Similar to you, I think, you know, I, mm-hmm. I we talked about this when you were on my show, but you know, you, you got deeper into the work you're doing and you went, wow, yeah, I've, I've, I've created something really great here. That's really valuable. And this mind is really deep. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Oh. I, I, I really, really resonate with this. And, and I think I, I shared the quote on, in our early conversation of knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. And for me, that is kind of like, it really is at the core of, you know, we can read so many books, we can ingest information, we can listen to podcasts till we're blue in the face. But yes, if we're not um, kind of embodying those is wisdom insights during our life, then it's, it's almost, it just stays in the mind. And, and I yep. think that it, it's such a fundamental and fascinating challenge. Um, and and I'd, I'd love to hear kind of from you what have been some of the the aspects or the tools or the practices or the the ways of of teaching these things that you think has really helped it to stick so that someone's not just kind of you know meditating for five minutes in the morning but then the rest of the day is exactly the same as it yep. was before yep i think the the um the the core i think uh, insight for lack of a better word is around the behavior change science of triggers Hmm. because triggers by their essence and i mean them in a positive way this time not in in addiction we we often mean trigger in a bad way uh trigger in a reminder to do something because that's the core problem the core problem is forgetting it's not that people don't want to to practice more of these principles it's they forget life is busy I get going. It's why that alarm's going off on my phone. Because if it doesn't, I will forget. Yeah. And so, so what we know is, okay, triggers are important, and there's lots of different types of them, uh-huh. right? So we there's there's a time based trigger, right? Like that's a time based trigger. Seven o'clock every night, that thing goes off. So that's one way you can just say, okay, you know, I'm going to use a time based trigger to remind me to do practice. That that can be useful. There's value in that, but it has its limitations. But but we can also run with it a little bit. There are triggers that are based on something else I've done. Like, okay, I after I walk the dog, then I will um, spend a moment uh, grounding my attention in my senses. You know, there's an example of a spiritual habit that would develop attention, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a spiritual principle that I think is kind of at the heart of things, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, there are location-based triggers. Every time I go in the kitchen, when I walk into the bathroom, then every time I go in the kitchen, I will um, remember to remind myself about what my intention was for today. That's an example. Um, there are, I've, we've experimented in the program with using what I call random triggers, which are, we use technology to randomly interrupt us and give us a message. So, and then ultimately, the ultimate trigger for both positive and negative is an awareness-based trigger. Hmm. It's a trigger that says something arises inside of me, Hmm. you know, interoception, right? Something is going on inside me. Mm -hmm. And most of us have these for the negative right now. 
Mm. Something arises inside of me. I may not even be aware of it at all. And the next thing I know, I am on Facebook or I'm eating a Twinkie or whatever, right? Mm. Mm. Something arises up and I do something. And and for most of us, this is, we, do, we don't even have consciousness at any part of that, that process, right? But if we can learn, on the other hand, to say, oh, when I notice I'm really tense, Mm-hmm. then I will do X. I mean, I noticed in your work, you've got the if then, right? Mm-hmm. If, this, if this, then same, same thing, right? I got the same, same sort of model. Like mm-hmm. if this happens, then I will do X. If I feel X, then I will do Y. Mm. That's the, that's the game changing trigger. That's the lib, that's the true liberating trigger. So we, sometimes we have to use the other triggers to, to, to get us a little bit more, get us a little bit more in the habit. So we talk about creating what I call still points. A still point is just um, a moment or two that you can intersperse throughout your day, whatever way you get them. So we can use time-based triggers to, um, you know, bring us to these still still points. Mm-hmm. We're talking about still points, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. So so once I've got these still points established in my day. Again, I can drop anything into them that I want to. So that's kind of the core method is to say, let's, let's slow down and pick a, we, we get, we, we ingest so much information to your point. Like, what if we just said, you know what, this entire week, my focus is on, um, you know, we can use lots of different words. Uh, uh, Adi Shanti, who you referenced earlier, would say, allowing everything to be exactly the way it is, mm-hmm. which is another word for it. We could use the word acceptance, but it's a it's a deep like I call it like deeply dropping the resistance to life. Mm-hmm. You know, we spend a lot of time just in sort of semi-conscious resistance. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, you know, there's a lot of this, right? So if we've got these still points established, even if all I do in that still point for that minute is just stop, drop kind of into my body, notice my breath, and just, am I resisting anything right now? And if so, can I just open up for a moment? If I do that five, seven, ten times a day, and I focus on that one one thing, that one spiritual idea for a while, I will, I will, I, I will, I will have a, I will change in a more profound way than meditating for 15 minutes in the morning and reading a couple paragraphs about it, right? Or what's even worse, which most of us do, is I meditate and then I read 18 articles on spirituality at the end of which i'm like i have no idea like what am i doing now i don't know right and so it's really about like let's slow down let's pick one principle at a time and let's really investigate how using triggers can integrate it into our lives until hopefully it starts to become to you like to use your model if then this right with the goal of if being I am more aware of what's going on inside of me mm-hmm. and I'm more aware of my habitual response patterns around them. And can I start to change them? Mm. That's re- really, really powerful. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on 
in my life, I've noticed that sometimes these desires for habits or behavior change can come with this, almost like this, this tension or this energy of like, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. And, and I can kind of fall into these traps of, of my mind controlling my body and almost becoming this like automaton or this robot, <laughs> as opposed to someone who is actually in tune with, you know, what, where is my intuition guiding me? What feels like the right thing to be doing and kind of slipping more into that effortless flow and i think there's a you know there's a role for both i think if our lives yeah. are slightly out of control then it having that kind of rigid maybe more masculine focused behavioral change approach is helpful but i, I do i wonder if there's also a place for something that's more more fluid as well what, what are your thoughts on that yeah i think it really depends on where you are and where fluidity tends to take you at the current point in your life if fluidity takes you into this beautiful flowering of who you really are, then by all means, it's a far preferable approach. If fluidity takes you to 14 hours of playing Halo and eating ice cream and you hate yourself the rest of the hours of the day, well, fluidity is not working in that moment. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's It's yeah. really... You know, who are you? And I think the other key component is, yeah, like we don't want to get into just doing something because we should do it. Mm -hmm. Like why? What's underlying it? Why does this matter to me? You know, it's like meditation is one of those things that I try and I don't love this word, but I'll use it. I try and make myself do because if I don't, I have a tendency to not, not drift towards it naturally. I'm kind of busy. Like I've got a, I've got a somewhat busier life than, than I might ideally like. Um, and there are, there are lots of ways that I'll get distracted and that may not be where I will go. So, so there is a little element of the masculine, like, yep. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to push myself there, but I'm also really clear on why. Like, it's not because I should, mm. it's because I know that I have, that, that, that the possibility of deep freedom lies there. Yeah. I also know that there are days that, yeah, I'm going through the motions. And so it, I do really think it depends on, you know, kind of where you are and what your, what the flow of your life looks like and, you know, where you go on your own, but, but ultimately yes i think that the approach of i should do this so i'm going to make myself do it and i'm not truly clear on the underlying desire mm -hmm. it's not ideal like intention is really important why does this matter to me mm -hmm. do i understand why this matters to me um and then also, you know, do I understand my competing potential competing commitments inside myself, right? And if I if I can if I can get clear on those, oftentimes, like you said, it it flows. Like for whatever reason, for me, exercise, like something happened several years ago where it just I just it's not that I don't occasionally need to sort of nudge myself in that direction. But it is such a profound good thing in my life mm -hmm. that I, it's pretty, I just flow towards it. Yep. You know, I just naturally, you know, again, the, the, not to say there aren't mornings where I'm like, okay, 
you need to get moving because if you don't, you're going to run out of time and you're not going to do it. And I'm, yeah, it's not that there's no effort, yeah. but boy, it comes from a genuine, like, hmm. boy, this, I know this is so good for me yeah. that I just deeply want to do it. And there are lots of things that are like that. So, yeah, I think, I think your point is a good one. And it, if you're really in tune with yourself and you're really in tune with your, your deeper desires, there can be a lot of flow, but I see a lot of people that's just not where they are right now. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. And, and and for me, there's almost like, um, I think in my journey through meditation in the beginning, there was definitely like, like kind of forcing myself to sit down on the mat and just like calm the monkey mind. But I think over time, and you know, particularly after retreats and things, there's almost, it's almost like the gravitational pull will change from kind of pulling you away into the world to like, actually, I, you know, maybe it's, there's a bit of resistance early on, but I do feel a deep sense of joy, peace, kind of, um, bliss sometimes during that. And I think, you know, it's similar with, um, ice baths. Like for me, it's something mm -hmm. I do almost religiously every, every morning is, is a cold plunge and it feels amazing. <laughs> and, and I think that it's no longer something that I think, oh, I should, you know, make myself do that because it's good for me. And the same with surfing, the same with, you know, we were talking about climbing earlier as yeah. well. And these things, it's like, I know they're great for me and I really want to do them. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, the more of, the more of that flow you can get the, the far better. It's a far better way to live. It's a far easier thing to do. And yeah, some of that does come by for a period of time, yeah, I kind of have to, I kind of have to give myself a little bit of effort, but then ideally motivation, you know, there, there, another truth that I think we've, we've figured out over the last several years and has been much better articulated is that oftentimes motivation follows action. You know, I do, I start something and the motivation is there. So sometimes I need, you, you know, sometimes we need a little you know, I can use a little push, but then immediately I'm like, oh yeah, like why? You know, I, I've, a I've asked no less than 15 people this on my podcast because it's a genuine question that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And it is this, literally every single time in my life I have exercised, and I mean everyone, there is no exception. At the end, I've gone, I'm glad I did that. Mm. Most people will have the exact same experience. And most of us, and myself included still sometimes, face some resistance. I'm like, why? That makes no sense. It makes no sense that I would do anything except run to exercise, given my thousand percent love of it being a good thing. No one has ever really been able to answer the question of like, why sometimes is that still difficult to do? Interesting. So I, I have the exact same thought every time I go surfing, even when I broke my surfboard, it's kind of on a wave surfing. I'm like, I'm still glad that I went out into the, into the sea. Yeah. And my, my initial thought, or at least uh, an, an offering is related to the nervous system. I, I think that when we're in a state of, of say, um, dorsal kind of um, <clears throat> vagal state, or it's early in the morning, there's almost different parts of ourselves are online. And you know, I, I think we have different characters within us. And so there is one yes. character that is associated with a certain nervous system state, which doesn't want to go exercise. It wants to stay in bed. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. as our nervous system changes and we kind of get more upregulated, different parts of ourselves come online and we're like, this is great. Like, let's, let's do this every day. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> totally. I mean, I've always felt like the, it, this is similar to what you're saying, but I felt like it is, it is a, there is some part of us that is wired for conservation of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some, there is some deep, you know, you see it in animals. They tend to not do much by and large that isn't required. You know, like they're, they're pretty chill, you know, by and large, they're like, yeah, okay, I need to go eat. I need to go do this. And then I'm pretty happy laying around 18 hours a day, you know? And, and so it feels like there's something there. And I think you're right. It is a nerve. It it does feel like a, like a, a, a physiological or a nervous system kind of thing. It's, it's less mental and it's more physical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think that's a really great. um, So for you, Knowing that when you say that your your nervous system becomes more upregulated, do you mean you need to get up and do something to upregulate it? Or do you mean by and large, you've done enough different things that you're sort of perpetually upregulated? Mm. Well, so I definitely don't want to be perpetually upregulated. That's a recipe for burnout. <laughs> um, but I, I think that I've uh like i almost have like like a warm-up kind of routine so in the Mm -hmm. mornings instead of going straight to the gym i'll kind of do some stretching light some candles try and look at looking at um the sunrise or sunlight outside is really good at kind of naturally getting some of that cortisol flowing which then creates a state where you're you know you're i'm like okay i'm ready i could go do a workout i could go you know do this thing as opposed to like straight out of bed and like going from naught to 60 it's like that feels like a lot for the totally totally yeah yeah and i you know i feel a lot for people who are um you know they've got young children Mm -hmm. and they've got they've got to get the they got to figure out you know they got to get the kids going in the morning and they got they're like i really want to try and get a workout in and i got to be at work at 8 30 and i've got a 30 minute and i'm just like yeah you do kind of need to cold start but boy that's hard to do it is really hard to go from bed to, to exercise bike in, in five or 10 minutes. Like, yeah, that's, that's tough. Like I'm like you, I, I have the, the, the relative luxury of being able to get up and sort of like, all right, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take the dogs out and I'm gonna look at the sun and I'm gonna, you know, I like, I've got a little thing. And then by the time it comes time for me to do something that's a little bit higher energy, I'm yeah. kind of there, yep. you know, yeah. but I remember, you know, I remember having, you know, young kids and having to be work at a certain time and being like, well, you know, I, there's 40 minutes from the time the alarm goes off until I need to be doing X. And so if I want 30 minutes, like, and I just remember like that, that's mm-hmm. tough. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was, there was one more kind of theme that I wanted to touch on, um, before we wrap up here and it's related to, I interviewed a guy called Casper on my podcast last year and he wrote a book about the power of rituals and mm. it, his uh, the way that i kind of interpreted it was as a, kind of like a, a guidebook for infusing the sacred into everyday life um mm. and, and i guess this is kind of coming full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning but um like my sense is that a lot of the pain kind of polarization addiction depression that we're seeing in the world is is at least in part a result of the lack of appreciation of the sacred and the sense of disconnection like is that something i'm curious how do you weave it weave that into your program if if at all is that something that kind of comes up or you might have a different word for it potentially 
Well, um, I'm trying to think about whether I want to focus on the word ritual in that, or I want to focus on the word sacred. In so that. His, um, his, his interpretation was, uh, was a ritual was almost like a habit that had an aspect of the sacred in it. That was kind of totally. The... Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that is this, this sort of takes us back to what we just talked about, which is at what point does something you do every day become rote if you're not careful? Mm-hmm. You know, like this is a this is a real like thing that I think about is how do you um, how do you do something consistently and have it still invoke a sense of the sacred? Mm. And I don't know that I fully know the answer to that. Um, you know, in the in the second version of the spiritual habits program, what I mean is like we've got the we've got the first. Uh, program. And if you go through that, then you're eligible sort of to go into the, the second one. And in there, we spend a lot of time actually doing kind of building a um, an actual set of rituals mm-hmm. that sort of take what some of our, you know, we may have some core practices like, oh, I meditate or I, uh, I do breath work or I do, but what sort of things might we wrap around that that gives the whole thing a little bit more sense of ritual slash ceremony mm-hmm. slash meaning so for example i was um I, i'm 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 a little uh i'm a little i haven't been doing it lately but but for several years i was very involved in zen practice and i practiced with a with a zen sangha and you know we sat together every day and there was a way we began every day and there was a way we ended. There were bows, there were chants, there were, you know, so there that element was there. And it is a, there is a little bit of a um, having to choose to say, am I going to just do these motions or am I going to try and connect with why I'm doing them? We, we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about this before yeah. about like, why am I doing what I'm doing? I may be, I may be nudging myself towards it. I may be structuring it to some degree, mm-hmm. but it's in service of this greater good. And if I connect to that greater good, the whole thing now has meaning instead of becoming a rote thing I make myself do. And we do know as humans, we have a tendency towards hedonic adaptation and all sorts of things where the thing that we see over and over, we, we know our attentional system, like the things we see again and again and again, we actually are not seeing on a certain level. Like, you know, at least a lot of the modern neuroscience ideas say, you know, my brain is doing two things. My senses, like my eyes are sending signals up towards my processing parts of my brain. And my brain is making a prediction about what it thinks it will see. Mm-hmm. And if those things match, I never actually see it in, in the truest sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of this becomes, yeah, we know as a, as a species, we had adaptation and we just go, you know, the brain's like, if I can take a shortcut, I'll take it. If I don't have to think about this thing every time, I'll stop thinking about it. It's like, I, I think I asked you, I was like, well, you put a post-it note up on you, you no longer see it, mm-hmm. you know? So the same thing I think can happen to these rituals that lead us into the sacred. Mm. So there's a, cho- I, I do think there's an active choice to say, I'm going to try 
to connect to what does it mean when I bow? And then I think we can introduce some variation in also. So the Zen thing that I'm, the Zen group I'm talking about, we had a different chant for each day of the week. So I kept hearing that we kept chanting the heart sutra on Wednesdays. So it happened regularly enough that it was a ritual. It had a thing to it, but it didn't happen every day. Mm-hmm. So there's, I think there's ways we can play with that also, where we say, let me, let me introduce some stability that, that is there. And then how do I introduce a little bit of variability also that might help keep the thing alive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that. And it, it, that's a very kind of practical approach as well. And what was just coming up for me as I was thinking about that in, in my life is um, I, I really liked what you said about connecting to the why and connecting to like the really deeper impulse and intention behind what we're doing. But I, I think that is the thing that, you know, ironically, we sometimes tend to forget or sometimes gets obscured. And so maybe yeah. having almost like a meta habit of like on a semi-regular basis being reminded of like the deep reason why you're doing this thing. And then I think the habits will, my sense is the habits will kind of fall from there because you'll naturally be drawn into that direction. Yeah. And, you know, the first of the spiritual principles that we focus on is intention, right? And I don't mean intention in the sense of like, you know, intend that you're going to have a a, a, a a six-figure bank account and it happens a week later. I mean, what matters to me? Yeah. Why do these things matter? The other thing that I, that the spiritual habits program does, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I totally you know, we're all, we're all borrowing from somewhere, borrowing from Ben Franklin and the Jewish practice of Musar, which, you know, Ben Franklin had his list of virtues, right? Mm-hmm. And he just practiced one for a period of time. And then when he got to the bottom of the list, he just started again at the top. The Jewish practice of Musar is the same thing. The different, different, there's different uh, time cycles, but they basically, and, but say they've got, say this, this branch of Musar says there's 12 core principles, and we're going to spend two weeks on each one. They do their, they do them, and then they just start over. And so you're you're sort of working through this core material that seeps into you deeper and deeper and deeper over time. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's also again, there's a little bit of that variability. And so, with the spiritual habits, the the idea is you're going to come back around to intention. So periodically you are going to be back in a place where you're going, why am I doing everything that I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Does it still mean something to me? Does it still matter to me? And I think something that often happens is that the meat, like you said, the meaning gets broken off from the thing. Mm-hmm. I see this with a lot of people say with like kids, mm-hmm. they get into this, like, I, I, I mean, I, this happened to me with a kid. I got into the, I have to, do this. I, that, those are the words I'd use. I have to take my son to soccer practice. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in this, like, oh, I got you know, this grumbling. Mm. No, I don't. Like, there's no <laughs> law that means I, there's no law in the US that I have to take my son to soccer practice. I, I absolutely don't have to. Yeah. I want to take him because I care about his development and I think that soccer will help him in the following. Okay. Now, I'm acting out of this place of a deeper choice. And the things I do 
sort of by rote now have a deeper meaning. And that's a periodic process that I think just constantly needs refreshed in us is why am I doing what I'm doing and recognizing I truly am kind of the architect of my life. Hmm. Hmm. But I have to, I have to step back into that role again and again and again, because I tend to step out of it and go, well, life's just happening to me. I'm having to do these things Hmm. versus going, okay, you know what? No, I'm choosing these things for reasons that are really important and that really do matter to me. Can I reconnect the activity to the meaning? Yep. 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 Yeah. It, it, it seems to me like the, the big part of the human experience is in some way, just like remembering, forgetting, remembering again, <laughs> forgetting. Yes. Yes. we're kind of on that, on that wheel to some degree. Totally. Um, well, p- a part of my awareness is on the time currently. <laughs> and so I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware that it's it's getting late over there. So would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll sure. wrap up? Sure, yep, yep. Okay, perfect. So uh, first one is, what is the first piece of advice that you'd give someone looking to deepen their meditation practice? Find a way to enjoy it lose the aversive relationship with it that most everybody has, which is, I can't stop thinking, so I think I'm failing, which causes us to develop a relationship to it that is not pleasant. So find some way to learn to enjoy it. Because if you develop an aversive relationship, you'll battle the rest of your life to do it. Whereas if you find a way to enjoy it, to your point earlier, it will happen far more easily. Yep. Who is one person you would love to have a conversation with on your podcast this year and why? Well, the the first answer is, and this is not going to happen, is Leonard Cohen. Hmm. Leonard Cohen was my number one guest I always wanted to have. And um, I actually got close, but it never happened. And then he passed. So that's my, that's my one. Beyond that, um, probably Pema Chodron. Um, just, she was, she was so, so she, that, that divorce I talked about earlier, that was like the hardest period of my life. Like her book, when things fall apart was like, it just got me through that. So there's this deep well of affection for her that, you know, I'd love to have her on. Mm. Mm. I feel that too. If I were to ask, what is the most important thing in your life right now? What comes up? Mm. Well, the first thing that came up was my partner, Ginny. That was the first thing that popped to mind. I, I, I could list lots of different things that are important, but that's the one that immediately jumped in is my partner, Ginny. Hmm. What has been the most rewarding or gratifying aspect of hosting the one you feed over the last eight years? I think at the end of the day, it is the the messages that I get from people about the ways in which the podcast has really helped them through some very difficult and dark times. You know, when I get letters from people, I mean, I got one last week about, you know, uh, my wife and I lost our, you know, had a stillborn baby a year and a half ago. And your show was like my light through that whole time, mm. like that sort of thing. You know, it... it mm. Ultimately, I mean, I love every aspect of it, but that sort of stuff is ultimately the the thing that feels most meaningful and gratifying. Mm. What are you most excited for in the coming year? 
I am most excited for, I'm kind of circling back around to giving the podcast more of it, more attention, ironically, even though it is the core of what we've done. But after about four and a half years of doing the podcast, I was able to leave my full-time job and start doing that and the, the coaching work that I do in spiritual habits. And so as I left there, I had to sort of turn my attention very much to the coaching work because it was what was going to enable me to spring myself from my, my other work, my, you know, my software work. Mm -hmm. And so coaching got a lot of attention and then spiritual habits came along and I was like, Oh my, you know, like I'm, I'm building and developing this thing. And I built the first version and we built the second course. And, and, and that feels like, okay, it's not that it won't continue to develop, but it's gotten the lion's share of my intellectual attention over the last couple of years. This year, I'm sort of circling back around and going, okay, what can we do with the podcast? You know, what can we do with our free offering mm. that adds more value to people and, and, and helps transform their lives more? What can we do with the podcast or things that we sort of wrap around the podcast as far as ways of interacting? Um, mm -hmm. That's what I'm excited about is to, is to sort of kind of go back to that thing that, I mean, I've always given the, I've always given the interviews attention. I've given them love and preparation always, but now I'm kind of back to the core idea a little bit and going, okay, what might we be able to do that? You know, we haven't, my, my thing that has all along been underneath that is like a thing I've wanted to do and spiritual habits has solved it a little bit is how do I get the people who listen to this show mm. who I've gotten to know enough of them to know that like there is a deep sort of commonality. How do I, how can we create things that allow those people to support each other? Mm. Spiritual habits, the beautiful part is that we create small groups and those small groups meet. And oftentimes they keep meeting well after the program is over. Yep. So we've got one that's been meeting for two years. They're going to they're gonna fly off and meet each other in person. So we've done it there. So people who pay in, in the program, they can create these small groups. But like for everybody else, like how people are lonely, people don't have support. People can't afford support in a lot of cases. So I'm interested in how do we continue to, to make more available at basically free that really supports people in their life. So I'm excited about that. That's a beautiful inquiry. Um, and yeah, well, this is, this has been an absolute pleasure, like truly, um, where can listeners find out both the one you feed podcast and your spiritual habits program and anything else you'd like to, to point them to. Yeah. If you go to oneyoufeed.net, it's all spelled out. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. Um, that's kind of where everything is. You can find links to the spiritual habits program, but if you wanted to, you could go to spiritualhabits.net uh, also, and it's all available there too. Okay. Amazing. And, and I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend listening to <laughs> honestly, most of the archive of, <laughs> of your podcast. It's, it's truly fantastic. Um, so I like to close with this Rulke line. Um, he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? 
Well, most uh, most alive in my consciousness right at this moment is your question or our sort of question around how how do I um, uh, find the right eff- the right amount of effort? In so another question that has always been so now it kind of led me to a a, peri, a perennial favorite of mine in said in other words is how do I try not to try? <laughs> you know we know that at a deepest level, not like letting go is is the path in, and yet how do I let go if I'm trying to let go? <laughs> You know, it's this. So, so yeah, I, I think that's a that's sort of a a perennial one. But you got me really thinking in both this conversation and the previous one about this idea of yeah, like how do we let as much of this be as effortless and flowing as possible? Mm-hmm. You know how and how do we know when is the you know the right time for which which approach? Which I think is a, that's another, I'm, I'm giving you four answers instead of one, but I think a fundamental question that I wrestle with a lot is exactly this idea that different people need different things at different stages of their journey. And even at different moments within like the same week, you know? And so I'm, I'm deeply interested in like, how do we start to discern what approach works best for us right now and not getting stuck? Mm. beautiful well thank you so much eric um this has been so much fun yeah thank you so much johnny i really have have enjoyed it and i think your podcast is i mean it's a newer podcast but boy you're doing so so good so good already like (laughs) amazing things to come I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.